The Black Bay Foster is rooted in the story of the Great Migration, of African Americans moving from rural to urban areas and mostly from the South to the Midwest and the North looking for jobs, trying to escape sharecropping, trying to find some levels of equality, even though they were still met with segregation in the large cities and creation of ghettos in some places, but also the creation of social enclaves uh, that become great neighborhoods, like the 18th Divine neighborhood here in Kansas City, or, or the growth of blacks in Harlem and New York, or Beale Street in Memphis. And they create their own schools, their churches, their bakeries, other businesses, and among those businesses are baseball. And some of them were even able to build their own ballparks or rent ballparks for minor league and major league teams. And so this is all part of that story and understanding that story. <laughs> Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Well, here we go, folks, uh, our return to civility. Believe in something beyond yourself to keep your ego in check. I think uh, some of our folks in uh, Washington, D.C. could uh, listen to this one. Sometimes simply looking at a picture of Earth taken from space is enough to remind you that there are more important things in the universe than your crisis of the day. (laughs) And things are all relative, folks, so uh, it is true. Believe in yourself beyond yourself to keep your ego in check. Egos have a way of really destroying people. Yeah, they really do. Uh, and we have an old saying in radio, check your ego at the door. And I think that's good advice for everyone. Just that, that's l- kind of like a good mic check. Yeah. Check, check, check your ego. Yeah, check it right. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it at the door. It really, it does, it's a shame. It's a shame. It gets in the way of so much. <laughs> it gets in the way of a, a lot of different things. And Ego has not gotten in the way of our guest today, nor of the organization that he is working with. Matter of fact, they have been forgotten for a long, long time, not in uh, the black community, but in Major League Baseball. And we're talking to Dr. Ray Doswell of the Negro League Baseball Museum. Ray, how are you doing today? I'm good, a little chilly, but we're working it out. There there you go, there you go. Now, we had you on uh, a couple weeks back for a a brief interview and wanted to have you back to talk at length about some things, and I appreciate you your willingness to do that. Uh, You've been on the show before, and uh, for all all those people who have not heard Ray previously, he is um, kind of a native of the St. Louis area, and went on to uh, bigger and better things at uh, Kansas State University where he got his doctorate degree and has been working for the Negro Leagues for how long now, Ray? Uh, since 1995. Holy smokes. You're older than we all thought, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well, the, the, gray, the gray hair is kind of giving me away a little. Well, at least you have hair. Mine's, it continues to fall out, even though I think I lost a lot of it 25 years ago. It's actually coming out your ears now. <laughs> well, it comes out places you don't want it to come <laughs> okay, out. Okay. That's, that's the problem right. with that. Indeed. No, uh, Indeed. Ray, thanks for coming back again and, and talking to us. One of the things that interested me uh, a great deal uh, a couple of weeks ago was your comment about the 
major league recognition of the Negro Leagues as a major league. And you said, well, we always knew that. And as I've listened to interviews of former Negro Leagues players, it was very evident they knew they were major leaguers, but not in the major league baseball sense. Can you kind of amplify again on on that? Because it's something that I really think people need to understand and get clear, that uh, even though it was a Negro League, they were major leagues. Indeed. So here at the museum, we define the Negro Leagues, and I want to say leagues is plural. It's more than one league. Um, we define them as the highest level of professional baseball that was available to African-Americans and Afro-Latino athletes from around 1920 to 1960. 1920 to 1960. There were attempts to do leagues, and again, it seems like everyone might know what a league is, but let me try to define it simply is these are a group of teams, organizations. These are really small businesses, amusement businesses, if you will. But uh, teams agreeing to play uh, on common opponents uh, through schedules uh, and maybe even do a little revenue and promotional sharing uh, to determine uh, a champion at the end of a season agreed upon format for maybe even a postseason as well. And um, this the there the leagues also governed how player transactions and contracts would be negotiated, developed and enforced as well as league rules as far as conduct and uh rules of play and things like that. So um these were leagues and there were attempts to create leagues of black baseball teams in the late 1800s, but none were as successful as the formation of the Negro National League in 1920, which its first meeting was held here in Kansas City in February of 1920, over 101 years ago. Wow. So, um, and here at the museum, as I noted, we, we focus primarily from the starting point of that business structure up through 1960 when essentially that business structure ended. It was interrupted in the middle by the Great Depression uh, in, the, in around 1929 to 1932, 1933, but um, the teams that come out of that business structure, top-level teams are the ones that we recognize as the Negro Leagues. There are many other levels of black baseball being played across the country, community teams, company-sponsored teams. Uh, it was not uncommon for these top-level teams of the Negro Leagues to interact with those teams as well. It's never a formal minor league system as we know it uh, today where there are communities with teams that are affiliated with major league teams and, and then they fulfill obligations to send them players and things like that. It was never those kinds of formalities, but sometimes those teams did work in that way. I mean, they could play a community team and they might discover a player and they may be invited to come up and travel with the black baseball teams. So uh, in terms of Major League Baseball and what was done, uh, we learned through this process of the elevation by Major League Baseball uh, that when even these things were being discussed as far as record bookkeeping and sports bureaus and defining what major leagues were, 
uh, and that includes, of course, the American League and National League and, and baseball and the Federal League, which was a short-lived uh, baseball league that shared some of these ballparks as well, but that none of the Negro Leagues were really given serious consideration for designation back in the 60s, which is a gross oversight. And so what the Commissioner of Baseball has done is to elevate seven of these leagues. Now, at the museum, we recognize roughly about eight of, eight leagues during this time period. And again, as I mentioned, there were some in the 1800s uh, as well and some of these other what you might call minor leagues as well. But eight of the top level, uh, seven, excuse me, seven of the top level leagues uh, between 1920 That's a great statement. As I was reading and preparing for this, because the coordination of records is something that was a little bit of a, my words, sticking point for Major League Baseball to even initiate and complete this um, identification. Because they were like, well, how are we right. going to start this? And I know you you mentioned 1920 to 1948, which is what the major leagues had had done. And the little effect, you know, I was reading about Willie Mays and how that's going to add some hits to him, but sometimes there's things that are um, because of record keeping and because of how baseball considers, you know, complete games or games or seasons and things like that, it came into question. Were you involved in any way or was the Negro Leagues, the baseball museum involved in any way in discussions with Major League Baseball about those things? The museum has no formal role in any of this. uh, uh, Our president, was involved in some of the discussions, at least was broached about it, but the museum is a consumer of this information just like everyone else. Uh, so we have no role, really, in the decision or um, in what gets included and what doesn't. I will say, though, that we, we're, we're welcoming the decision, uh, but statistics uh, in particular are not a major part of what we do here. Uh, this is a story that is chronicled through photography, through artifacts, and through all history, and that's primarily the core of of the material that we use to present the history, and of course trying to make sure that it, it has its connections to the broader African-American story and American story even beyond baseball itself. Um, and those are, those are our primary points in terms of telling the story, but statistics are still part of the story and we do our best to interpret them. But here's the point that I think everybody needs to understand. There is no complete record statistically of the Negro Leagues. And my my, I, my guess is that there never will be because it just don't exist because of segregation. They weren't covered in the same way. Uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Globe Democrat did not cover the St. Louis Stars in the same way 
uh, as they did the Cardinals or even the Browns. It's just so there's no day-to-day record. There's no record books that have survived. Um, there are no scorebooks that have survived. At least uh, what has survived is probably just snippets of seasons and things like that. It just doesn't exist. And and the the oversight in the 60s is important because even though they probably weren't even complete then, you were at least closer to the time period, and there were plenty of people alive that you could have tapped into to try to get a better, more equal record of those things, and they were ignored. So this is a gross oversight in history that MLB is trying to correct uh, in these terms. So um, there are many diligent historians out there, though, trying to piece this together through newspaper accounting mostly. So you turn to the St. Louis Argus and not the Globe Democrat, you know, uh, uh, the Post-Dispatch for these uh, for this information. And the Argus comes out every week, not every day, at least it used to. So um so there are games that get missed. The other thing is that black teams also had to uh, to survive, played extra games. So the St. Louis Stars could travel to Kansas City to play the Monarchs, uh, but they would play out, uh, They could, along the way, could play in St. Charles, Missouri. Maybe they played the white Kiwanis Club team or got to Jefferson City and played uh, a local black team sponsored by... Um, a local store, um, and then made their way through Columbia and then up to outside of Kansas City and at least some of Missouri, and then finally get to Kansas City and play their league schedule game. And then maybe even went and played the Monarchs over in Kansas uh, in Leavenworth and Atchison and playing other games there in order to make additional money. So the historians are sorting through if it, if those all games get reported, then what games count, what games don't count towards the record. So the the statistics are a living and breathing body of documents that continue to grow and continue to be refined. One of your your colleagues, Bob Bob Kendrick, he uh, who's executive director at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, said, in all my years of having known so many legendary Negro League players, I never heard them even questioning whether or not they would be viewed as, quote, major league, unquote. They didn't need the validation. They knew how good they were. They knew their league was as professional as any. But for history's sake, this is significant. And, you know, we talked about statistics and there's another uh, statement that I was reading that history is a process, not a product. And understanding what these statistics do uh, with the cutoff at 1948, but for for some, it's it's a downside. For some, it's a plus. And here's a downside: some female players who played for Indianapolis in 1953 and 54. Some uh, other significant things like Hank Hank Aaron's. Uh, home runs that he hit for the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. Some good things are like no-hitters. Matter of fact, first day no-hitters. Josh Gibson's batting mark. So I I do see some some amalgamation of of some of these things, uh, right, which is to me is is good, and I, I really am grateful these people, some of these people, man, they spend their whole lives looking at these baseball statistics and, like you said, going through old newspapers oh, yeah. and, and compiling this data. It really just makes things uh, much more vibrant and real right. and honest. That's true. You're, you're correct to point out that, that people have a certain expectation uh, that um, 
stats are going to validate or jump over or whatever for Major League Baseball. Uh, but that is a myopic view in terms of how we always view baseball through the lens of Major League Baseball and white baseball. You can't do that with the Negro Leagues, and that's the nuances of racism and segregation in America, which we are trying to remind people about. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the nuances of that. Um, um, and what was missed, because they were not included, number one, or not covered and couldn't be covered in the same way, our records couldn't be kept in the same way. So... Um, uh, history is a is a process, not product. That's probably John Thorne, the uh, the lead historian in Major League Baseball. I've heard him say that as well, and um, he's he's one of the people helping to try to lead this effort and trying to define these these things. Um, and what he also has told me is that you know, and I think it's true that you're not going to see anyone really get their re- their current records leapfrogged by any black players per se as far as numbers. But there are some other nuanced things that might happen, like percentage records. It's very possible, and once confirmed through comparable numbers of at-bats and things like that, that Ted Williams' 400, home run, 400 batting average season will be eclipsed by one or maybe two other Negro leaguers. Hmm. Uh, doesn't diminish the greatness of Ted Williams, um, no. doesn't necessarily elevate the greatness of these other players other than they had successful seasons as well. It's just that they are now better incorporated part of comp- uh, uh, the conversation based on what is conceived to be uh, like competition in that way. Other nuanced things, we have uh, having this discussion with my friends at the Kansas City Royals through our friends at the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, Cincinnati is said to have had the first Major League night baseball game in 1935. Well, we've always known that the Kansas City Monarchs played night baseball as early as 1930, and there were others, minor league teams, experimenting with it then, too. But now is the Monarchs game in March or May of 1930 the first Major League night baseball game. Wouldn't that be great? I don't know if that (laughs) matters to some people. It doesn't matter to me personally in that way other than, I mean, it doesn't change what happened. We know that the Monarchs played night baseball for Major League Baseball, which is really just the point. Um, You know, product is defining, well, who's first, who's the best, these kinds of things. No, it's it's much more evolved and nuanced than that, and so people have to kind of get out of themselves and get out of that thinking. Do you think that, because I've heard this and read, read this, that, you know, the legend and lore of the Negro Leagues, well, you know, you can't quantify some things, and maybe some of the uh, players weren't as, it's not my words now, but for lack of anything, weren't as great as the legend and lures describe them. We're going to talk in the next hour about James Cool Papa Bell, who was uh, with St. Louis, uh, the Stars. And, you know, one person was comparing statistics with other Negro Leagues players and saying, well, if you kind of look at this, and it, it just seemed like a lot of... Um, my words, again, uh, statistical analysis that was not necessarily viable, uh, but comparison in the baseball realm, uh, saying, well, he really wasn't the fastest guy right. because he didn't steal all these bases. Somebody else stole all these bases. How much does legend and lore play in this? Well, legend and lore does play a large role in this, but we also need to kind of get out of this winning bar bet mentality that, <laughs> you know, we yeah. got to have the, the, 
the best and only trivia facts to show up our buddies. Um, <laughs> what's more important to me is Bell's story of coming up from Mississippi uh, through the Great Migration, like so many African Americans did at that time, ultimately becoming a star in St. Louis as a young pitcher, as a pitcher, and then transitioning to outfielder, and was respected by all his contemporaries and teammates as the fastest player that they had ever seen, um, and played on important teams, played on championship teams, like in St. Louis and in Homestead, uh, in Washington, D.C., and with the Crawfords, where he was one of five future Hall of Famers, um, and was a beloved figure after baseball in St. Louis. That story is more important to me whether he actually stole over 100 bases in a season or not. So uh, that's how I try to, to make the connections to the broader history, uh, and the stats will help tell that story. We want to get as accurate of statistical information as possible, but we just it's important to get the whole person's story, and uh, athletes are not, these athletes are more than machines. They, they have an important story to tell us about the American experience, and uh, that's what needs to be emphasized. That's an excellent comment. The American experience and athletes are more than machines. Yes. And we tend to think, uh, you know, like you said, it's the it's the barroom trivia, you know, who can outdo somebody else. Uh, great comments. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Ray Doswell from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. You need to get up there, folks, and see that. In going back with legend and lore, just for a brief moment, do you think it's personality, it's popularity, it's individuals who performed well on whatever teams they were. Like I think about James Cool Papa Bell. He had a very honest, vibrant personality. He performed well on every team, was really kind of a, you know, for lack of better words, even-keeled guy. Do you think that is not only indicative of individuals in the Negro Leagues, but also in other professional sports? Well, um, I, I think he might have been a unique individual you certainly had to love competition and and um not be afraid to be out there or shy if you will to want to compete and do well by all accounts compared to he was not unusual but compared to most of his contemporaries he was unique in who he was and and how he carried himself not a gregarious person but someone who um was very well respected and uh, ultimately became someone who was very well respected in the St. Louis community. And it helped, too, that he was able to be around to embrace and uh, mentor other athletes like Lou Brock, another person of uh, great confidence but great ability, uh, but pretty humble in terms of how he presented himself to the public. Um, and... and um, uh, and philanthropic in other ways. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, he was my, I don't idolize many athletes. In fact, I don't idolize any, except for Lou Brock. Um, growing up in St. Louis, he was my, he was the reason why I love Cardinal baseball and um, and remain loyal to the Cardinals. But uh got a chance to get to know him a little bit as well and his wife Jackie and uh, through their support of the museum. So uh, I was heartbroken when he passed away mm-hmm. uh, last year, uh, and and he and, and Bob Gibson and yeah. so many other oh, yeah. African-American great players we lost 
Um, it's it, we've lost a, 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 we've lost some key people. Joe Morgan being another key people in that generation of players who crossed over the bridge built by the Negro Leaguers um, uh, towards integration of the sport. And uh, so it's a this is an important moment in our history, and to have the culmination too of this this. Um, recognition with the statistics and the intention and the increased recognition of the Negro Leagues nationally is an important moment. I can't I can't help but I have to ask. I have a Brock umbrella. Do you have Ray, do you have a Brock umbrella? <laughs> you you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking okay. about. Unfortunately no, I never got one. Oh I have um, I do have one. We have one at home. We really have wow, a Brock umbrella. It's that, a crazy thing. Yeah, it's. You're, do you know what Arnold? Back do, a little ways. Oh yeah, I you, know. You remember the Brock umbrellas? Uh, absolutely. Those are the greatest things in the world. But, yeah. You don't need an umbrella. You just need a Brock umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it was. Which folks, Mark, describe that for people who may not know what what that is. Uh, it's it's uh it's a headband. It looks like a headband, and then it has an umbrella. It's a small, very small umbrella. It just barely would cover your your head, and uh, multicolored. You know, and uh, it was it was just the funniest thing in the world. But he sold those things like crazy, or whoever <laughs> marketed whoever did that for him. for for Lou. Anyway, when you know, yeah, go ahead. You know the thing. I'm just just saying, if I you'd indulge me a little Cardinal talk because I don't get enough of it here in Kansas City. I bet you don't. <laughs> I bet you don't. I'm still. Uh, you know, they're a bit. I'm still I'm st- I'm still hurt yeah, about that I seventy uh, series. series. Yeah, it still still makes me mad. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, I joke about it when I speak here. Um, uh, but you know, I, I'll just say the Royals are actually very supportive of the museum, and uh, I um, and I do enjoy going to the ballpark here. Uh, it's a great fan experience, and of course, the Cardinals do come up. So, and we get lots of Cardinal fans that come here. But um, just that time period for me as a young person. Um, uh, when, you know, when Brock was on the team, the Cardinals weren't necessarily that good, um, in his waning years, uh, compared to what would happen as they got into the early eighties. Um, so, but still for me to, uh, to be, to have him as a player to admire was, was important. And that helped spark the love affair that they, they, um, they had for us in the early 80s that 82 team in particular was was very important to me but uh the cardinals early on were were a team that i think initially was slow to integrate but once they got brock and and uh gibson and bill white Mm -hmm. and julian javier and orlando Mm -hmm. cepeda you saw the success that they had um you know in a city that probably wasn't as progressive as some others, really considered most southern most city in Major League Baseball for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Jackie Robinson, the Dodgers had some of their biggest problems with integrating things in, uh, in St. Louis sometimes. The mm-hmm. Chase Hotel was not always welcoming to those players. Uh, they had some gymnastics they had to do. Uh, but it's an interesting era that we all just need to remember and and with last year in particular with the uh, social unrest and the reckoning on race, we've been asked to yeah. comment on that. And those are the kinds of histories that we need to remind people about. Right. I, I don't think we went over this, but how big was the Negro League? Where did it, how many, did it take in all 40? It didn't take in all 48 states, I wouldn't think, did it? The Negro League itself? No, but 
No, but uh, black baseball is popular all over the country. Um, At the time. Baseball in general, obviously, right. is popular. But in there, if there were black neighborhoods and communities, they probably had amateur or professional baseball teams. But we're looking primarily at large urban centers in the Midwest, Northeast, and in the Southeast. Uh, there were over, between 1920 and 1960, we estimate about uh, 30 different communities, over 70 teams. Wow. Uh, we mentioned the, the, the about eight leagues just in that period. And this is a story, this is a, the black baseball story is rooted in the story of the Great Migration of African Americans moving from rural to urban areas and mostly from the South to the Midwest and the North looking for jobs, trying to escape sharecropping, trying to find some levels of equality even though they were still met with segregation in the large cities and creation of of, of ghettos in some places but also the creation of social enclaves uh, that become great neighborhoods. Um, like the 18th Divine neighborhood here in Kansas City or, or the growth of blacks in Harlem and New York or Beale Street in Memphis. And they created their own schools, their churches, their bakeries, their um, other businesses, and among those businesses are baseball. And some of them were even able to build their own ballparks or rent ballparks for minor league and major league teams. And so um, this is all part of that story and understanding that story. So last year you had the 100th anniversary. And in spite of the pandemic, you still had a lot of activities, and you're going on the 101st anniversary. So how did that go last year, and uh, what are some things that folks can look forward to seeing when they head up to uh, Kansas City to uh, see the museum? Well, we were able to kick off the anniversary, which was February 13th, and we had a press conference in the building of the founding of the league, which still stands. Our hope is to turn that into an education and research center, so it's in rough shape now. But we actually were able to kick that off with the commissioner of baseball in town. He came and recognized that anniversary with us, and we had an art exhibit open as well that we were able to keep open for about a month until we had to close. We reopened in June, took advantage of a little bit of that time to do a, a couple of refurbishments in the museum, um, including actually um, a redo, part one of a redo of the section that dealt with the integration of baseball from uh, featuring all the players who helped integrate baseball from 1947 to 1959. Uh, and that opens to something new once we open to the public. And then we've just finished the second part of that redo, uh, which opened in December. And we're looking at and investigating other things that we can change in the museum. Obviously, we've had to shift some of our in-person programming to virtual, and really are just kicking that off this February. We we purposely waited to see what we could do and how that could work. Uh, so things like having autograph signings with authors who've written about books like we had Ron Rappaport here talking about his book on Ernie Banks, which actually came out a couple of years ago. But due to the pandemic, we couldn't bring him to town, but we were able to have him do the virtual program. Our new biography on Oscar Charleston, one of the great players, um, that book came out last year, and we were able to have that art to do a Zoom program with us and was well attended, well over well over 500 guests from across the country attending wow. both of those events. 
And in between, we've been asked to do all kinds of media and other things talking about social justice issues and everything else. But one of the things that, and, and actually I'd say among museums, we're doing quite well and did quite well because people really gravitated to wanting to celebrate the anniversary and support the history. We had hundreds of donations as well as folks uh, shopping in our museum store. But the one thing we did miss, and, and it is noticeable, is that we didn't have the fans coming through. And we have visitors. We were open in June. But uh, normally, like, for example, with the Cardinals being in town, we'd be wall-to-wall people. And, of course, that couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what we one of the things we missed the most. One of the things that we wanted to do in June, uh, which ultimately we did get to do later in August with Major League Baseball, but it wasn't quite the same. But in June, Major League Baseball was going to do a league-wide salute to the Negro Leagues. That got pushed to August, but our president was able to uh, pivot and do more of a social media campaign in June and salute to the Negro Leagues in the 100th anniversary. And that included uh, salutes from uh, four of the former living presidents, uh, Mr. Carter, Mr. Clinton, Mr. Bush and Mr. Obama, and that went completely viral, and then everyone started saluting celebrities, athletes from other sports, athletes within baseball, um, and they did these virtual tip of the cap salutes uh, to the anniversary of the Negro Leagues, and that raised a lot of money and, and awareness as well, and then that momentum just kept going. We also had the attention of with the the players that we I mentioned passing away. It was always news that came back to us and trying to comment on that on Morgan and Brock and Gibson and and of course Henry Henry earlier this year and then the news of the uh, the statistics uh, uh, just really was just just took people by storm. I, I'm still doing interviews about that topic even now, even though that announcement was several weeks ago. Um, and now we're doing our virtual programs. I'm actually looking right now at our calendar for this, at least through June, uh, where we're going to do everything virtual. Um, and probably after that as well as we get into July, but we're considering where we can do hybrid programming. And for 101, uh, the one event that we didn't get to do was a gala, which would have been in November last year, and we're hopeful maybe this coming November, which is usually when we do a big event, that we can do that live. Uh, so that's still under consideration. One final thing is um, we've been tasked with pivoting with the Negro Leagues 101 anniversary to do a 101 college-level type course, uh, but it won't be so much of a course, but it will be a series of programs uh, that really tries to define the Negro Leagues and gives everyone a chance right. to learn the basics about what the Negro Leagues are. There may be a couple of different series with that, something that I'm hoping to get off the ground for late summer and then something for the fall uh, that would be actually partner with the college, uh, Distinguished Lecture Series, mm-hmm. uh, and then leading into 2022 because, put this on your radar so you invite me back, in 2022 <laughs> is the 75th, 75th anniversary of the integration of baseball, Jackie Robinson's first season. Oh, great. Uh, 1947. So so the education piece will dovetail from the Negro Leagues right into that. That's the goal, and that's what we're working on right now. 
That's that's perfect. And you do such a great job of getting a lot of activities together with the uh, adult programs and the lectures. And I, I did see the tip of the cap on social media. Uh, really, really wonderful thing. How do you like? How do you spend your day? You know, you're the VP of um, curatorial services, and I'm sure you're not, you know, getting photographs and cleaning them off. That's probably somebody else doing that. But take us through exactly uh, kind no, of what you no. do. You I do that. Say, I bet he does it's it. It's me. <laughs> I, I'm a one-man shop oh, oh my uh, right now, and I have been for many years. Occasionally I would have some support through an intern or occasional staffer, but, yeah. And that's why, unfortunately, on the, the unfortunate part of that is that there are a lot of things that, some museums are able to do now that we can't because I just, just don't have enough bodies or help to do that or or even the space to do that. But that's uh, mentioned, the, um, if I hadn't mentioned, the founding of the, of the Negro Leagues happened in the old Paseo YMCA building, mm-hmm. which is around the corner from us. We own that building now, and we hope to turn it into an education and research center. So the growth of these kinds of services We'll linger there. Once we're ready, it's, we're still a long way off from that. But then I'll have more help, and then we'll be able to have library services, archival services for the public, and welcome wow. researchers in wow. uh, to do research. But we're, I help with researchers all the time, mostly media and kids calling for National History Day projects. I, I don't really do tours per se. We're not doing tours right now, but I have done tours and can do tours usually uh, for some school groups, sometimes for special guests that might include baseball teams as well. My day is is right now trying to organize the educational calendar. Uh, But, yeah, researchers, uh, movie studios. I talked to some filmmakers yesterday who want to do a project, maybe a documentary on Jorge Pascal. There's a trivia question for you. He's not a player. He's someone who was official in the Mexican baseball leagues who uh, in the 40s actually was recruiting black and white players to come down there against the wishes of the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues. So a fascinating story about who he was. We care what we can for artifacts, and, and I'm responsible for coming up with sometimes and writing exhibits right now you think we'd have more time, but this virtual world has actually made me probably busier than I've been in many years right. um, because of the, mm-hmm. we are, the, the, the beauty of it is that we can contact even more people with programming than we would with local audiences, but mm-hmm. the demands on that time are really increased, especially during Black History Month, and I've been... I've been quite busy this month in particular, and that's rolling into March, and then it looks like it's going to roll into April with the start of the baseball season. So I, I would say if there are people uh, who are interested in being an intern at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to help you out, well, that would well, be a, a wonderful thing. <laughs> really, I'm coming. I'll be over. There's, I don't want to be inundated with applications right now because uh, I don't really have a good place for anybody to work because uh, we, we've got limited space. But... That is what we're we're moving towards, uh, and uh, we're not really in a position to hire anybody right now either. But uh, we are moving towards that so that we can have more of a formal program, and then I can get more organized and actually be able to intelligently give people assignments on different things. I'm but you will see some things coming out. I yeah, imagine you websites see websites and things like that. Yeah, you you see some things that you can't put out yet for to show 
Right. I imagine that, and you haven't even been able to, you know, read every single document that you you get. I know there were some donations that were recently made to the museum. Um, you know, the Rube Foster Ledger and some other things that are really valuable. Mm-hmm. Are most of these donations? Are they? Do you Lovers. actively seek some of these things, or what's what is? How does that play out, well, Ray? In the case of the Foster Ledger and other collections that were associated with that, that was not a donation. We had to buy those items. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not always in a position to purchase and compete in the auction market for certain things. Uh, but we were fortunate because those items were initially loaned to us as part of last year's celebration for a temporary display, and then we negotiated to purchase those items. Um, we did, uh, and also of note, we were able to purchase a rare letter signed by uh, Bud Fowler, who was an early era black baseball player, very noteworthy player in the baseball history circles, and few surviving documents connected to him. We had to purchase that. Uh, these are, I can't say exactly what they cost, but these are these are five to six figure level purchases for us, which is not easy. But because of the support that people have given us, it, it, it helped uh, us work out what we're able to do. Now, that has uh, translated also into the donations. And I want to remind people, some people, they see things and they, they want to collect them or they think they have something that we'd want to, they'd want to give. And that's fine. Call us first. We don't want to accept it if we don't have a room for it or if it's not really relevant to the collection just because it's a black baseball player or a black baseball, it may not be relevant. But if we can't take it, we can maybe can suggest someplace else if you're just inclined for a donation. But we did get a, a, a surprise donation in the last year from the estate of Penny Marshall. Uh, Penny Marshall, a former actress and director. Uh, she was famous for uh, directing a league of their own uh, film on women's baseball. Was an avid sports memorabilia collector, and when she died, uh, the estate contacted us that she had a number of things related to the Negro Leagues and black baseball and Harlem Globetrotters basketball, which there are some crossover connections to black baseball, and hmm. left us several things. Um, uh, I'll admit, a lot of it is mostly memorabilia in terms of not not necessarily museum-level quality material. Not that it's bad stuff. It's autographed things and very nice and highly collectible. Uh, but there are some gems in there, especially some old uh, Negro League baseball programs and publications and some game posters and things like that. And we're very excited that she thought enough of us to even consider the museum. Um, And to my knowledge, I don't think she had ever visited the museum, although it wouldn't surprise me. People come in here all the time. You never know who you're going to meet. I bet. So, but the the thoughtfulness was great. And um, these things are not on display yet, but we're working to put them on display, but also digitize them for virtual displays as well. And so this is all ongoing. And all in your uh, job description. <laughs> right. <He's, laughs> well, he, that description has kind of been molded and, and stretched a little bit, but uh, we, we do what we can. I'm, I, I get more excited about these those creative, more creative projects. But, and there's some mundane, but, uh, you know, one of the great things for me is that, you know, I can unchain from my desk and walk around the galleries 
and then be able to talk to people right. and find out where they're from, what their interest is. And uh, I'm always buoyed by that. Uh, uh, as soon as I think I'm, I'm, I'm bogged down by work and it's getting a little mundane, get up, go and talk to people, see what interests them. You know, when I walk around the museum, you know, it's my job to find problems, things that need repair, things that need to be updated, things like that. But the people engage it, and they're extremely excited. They're thankful that we're here, uh, and that's all they want to do is thank us and ask questions, and, and that's what energizes me. So he's the chief, the CEO, the chief everything officer. <laughs> that's what it sounds like no, no, well I, I liken myself to the umpire oh. i'm the umpire oh okay that's so a good way to do it there here's why why the umpire well i i know the rules and i keep track of the game but honestly if 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 i'm not noticed in the game everything runs smoothly then i've done my job there you go and uh so if you go through the museum and none of the problems I see affect you and you you still think this is the greatest experience you've had, then I've done my job. And I'll, and I'll just keep striving for working at that perfection. Well, you do your job very, very well, uh, Ray, and I greatly appreciate your time today. It's always fun talking to you. I learn a boatload of stuff uh, each and every time we do have a conversation. And uh, the interest and passion and dedication uh, – that you have for what you're doing is really, really important, and they have the right person in that particular position in you. So thank you very much for your uh, dedication and your integrity and in holding that out. And what a great way to end that, because I thought your comments with that were, were, were good. It's, it's all about people communicating and listening and uh, providing a great experience. And if they have a great experience, there's no hiccups. You've done your job very, very well. Well, thank you for that, and you're very kind, and uh, we look forward to folks coming to see us. They can certainly join us online for programs. Look for us on Facebook Live, especially in YouTube uh, with announcements of programs. Uh, and, of course, we're open for visits. If you're feeling secure enough to do that, uh, we're following all kinds of protocols here, so come on up and go Cardinals. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> go Cardinals. We've been talking to Dr. Ray Doswell from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He's Vice President of Curatorial Services. Ray, good to talk to you again. Look forward to some future conversations. Thank you. All day. Thank you. Ray. Take care. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast to keep up on all of the latest episodes. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.